in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are two great hosts and two great friends, Ms. Lizzie Haynes from the Derby City in Louisville. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm much better than earlier this week. We were supposed to record two days ago, but thanks to your flexibility, <laughs> I'm much, much better. Had a poking eye incident and luckily we're all good now. So feeling much better. You have both of your eyes. Still. Yeah, she, she yes. has no pirate patch either. <laughs> like, you know, she's got both eyes functioning. So that's good. Yes. That's a win. We need those for watching movies. So those are important. Uh, <laughs> Dustin from the Lone Star State. Deep in the heart of Texas. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I climbed a waterfall today. Climbed wow. a waterfall? How yep, does one do that without freezing it into ice first, which I know you didn't do in Texas? Let me tell you, when it's 105 and you're looking for an outdoor activity, you find whatever water's nearby. And so I just said, I want to do that. I want to go up there. That's so cool. Well, today's movie may give you a sense of discomfort. Let's all get uncomfortable together. So we might have an ominous feeling today. What is a movie that gave you some uncomfortable, ominous feelings, but you enjoyed? Lizzie. A movie that I found very uncomfortable, but that I enjoyed. I honestly, I've got to say A Clockwork Orange. I think that movie is really, really hard to watch. It's super controversial because, you know, it gets into this idea of free will and, and all kinds of, and, you know, and when you're watching it, gosh, like that singing in the rain scene is really... Mm. Mm -hmm. to this day, is really, really difficult to watch. But at the same time, it's, dare I say, it's a masterpiece. I just, I think it's so well done and so avant-garde in all the best ways. So that, for sure, is a guilty pleasure. That's all right. Yeah, Dustin, how about you? What's a movie that made you uncomfortable? I think it's okay to bask in the viewing experience of something that is objectively, like, awful, like what, what they're doing, the ultraviolence. But I love that movie, too. Uh, I also I like the uncomfortable movies uh, from six years ago, maybe a, right around that time. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Either you two heard of it? No. You've mentioned this one to me on the show, Dustin, but go ahead. It really, it's uh, it, Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman uh, are our stars. And we've got a situation where he plays a surgeon who lets someone die on the operating table. And the domino effect from that, including the supporting cast that comes around who's aware of it uh, is really quite uncomfortable. And I, I would say, while I enjoy it, I don't know if I particularly recommend it for a general audience. You have to be one of these people, kind of like us, who are like, ooh, I want to watch something that makes you a little uncomfortable. This is it. So nice. Weird Al's Like a Surgeon is not included in that soundtrack? Then? <laughs> uh, not, not tonally for that one, but it's not like, I can't say it's not on my iPhone right now. <laughs> All right. Along the lines of what Lizzie said, I kind of thought my head went to, you know, I love The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as a movie. It has a really hard to watch scene in there. And, yes. um, you know, I, I can't say I really enjoyed it. If you want to talk about something that made me uncomfortable, but I enjoyed it, I'd say Insomnia. 
is a really great thriller movie that just gave me some very discomforting feelings and but it was such a good movie i was engaged the whole time so kind of two different angles of how to handle that like you know one was more like ah I could do without that team. <laughs> but yeah. the other one being like, no, no, I'm uncomfortable and I like it. So, well, today, what movie are we going to cover, Lizzie? We're going to do 1945's Leave Her to Heaven. All right. As you mentioned, it comes out in 1945. I don't have fantastic box office information that far back, but I can tell you this. It made $13.8 million domestically. It was Fox's highest grossing picture from the 1940s decade. It is number three on the box office in that year. Ahead of it placed Mom and Dad. And behind it placed The Lost Weekend. And the number one movie from that year was The Bells of St. Mary's. So IMDb gives Lever to Heaven a 7.6. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes like it considerably more at 85%. And the audience score is right there with the critics. Rare alignment here, 85% as well. The Academy Awards give this a winning award for Best Cinematography in Color. And the Academy Awards nominees go for three of these. You get Best Actress for Jean Tierney. She loses to Joan Crawford, who won for Mildred Pierce that year. Best Art Direction and Color and Best Sound. And the Venice Film Festival nominee gave it for the Grand International Award. So got some distinction nominees there. No AFI awards here. But it was selected from the National Film Registry in 2018 by the Library of Congress for being culturally and historically and aesthetically significant. So... 1945 was a big year for America, and on 1945, Germany surrendered in World War II, and uh, the atomic bomb was dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Japan surrendered in uh, September too. and then the Second World War came to an end, and so we're happy the country all comes to this dark, suspenseful melodrama with hints oh, of noir wow. influences here. <laughs> yeah. So this movie is released in December, so everybody's got some good vibes, we're riding high, and, <laughs> and then they said, leave her to heaven, how's that feel? So... Justin, had you seen Leave Her to Heaven before? Of course not. This movie is 80 years old. Uh, it's why I love you guys, and it's why I'm so happy that you invited me to do this show with you. Uh, it, uh, no, I, the movies of this age, I do treat with a very particular respect. And when it comes to things that are this old, I need to sort of warp my mind. I'm not doing the mental exercise of like, what if I was sitting in the theater with my best gal? No, it's more of a like, I need to appreciate it for what it is and when it came from. So while I, I didn't know much about it, this was my first time watching. I gave it two watch-throughs, though. I, I, I needed to pay attention. Nice. Do you feel like this movie is aging well into today's era? I think I've said it before that certain movies feel as if you can put them in a box or categorize them, especially with certain genres. Now, with this one, I believe if you wanted to call noir a, a genre, then it would fit. But while there's plenty of things that clearly don't hold up like uh landlines we'll say uh, sure or, yeah. or like you got my telegram i came right away or the idea for families to have the kind of wealth to own multiple homes across the entire continental you know, united states aside from that i think the emotion of this movie absolutely holds up and i think it would be these kind of emotions especially shown with gene tierney's character with like the jealousy with the the woman's character. You would be hit over the head with that nowadays. And this was a more subtle time. And I think it was really well done. Interesting. And Lizzie, how about you? Had you seen or even heard of Leave Her to Heaven before? Never heard of it before. I reached out to my dad when I found out that we were doing this because I've said it before on the podcast that my dad is a huge classic film fan. And any one of the movies that we've done previously, I've always reached out to him to get his kind of 
very quick review. He had never heard of this either. So I was really excited to just explore it. And honestly, I think I'm pretty on par with how Dustin feels. I really, really enjoyed this movie. I had zero expectations. And I think just like you said, Dustin, you said it perfectly. You know, there's a certain amount of grace that you give to these older movies because you understand that they're limited in a lot of ways and that the times were just so different so that you want to be able to extend that grace. But this movie, I don't feel needed that grace. I think that this movie really stood on its own two feet in a big, powerful way. And you really took the words right out of my mouth, Justin. I think, mm-hmm. you know, in back in the 40s and I, I think probably up until maybe the mid 60s, early 70s, there were really only two roles for women. You were either a damsel in distress or you were a femme fatale, you know, like the killers and double indemnity that we've reviewed before. There's very clear femme fatale roles. I really liked this movie, how with Ellen's character, it doesn't rush it. You get a lot of time to let your imagination kind of run wild until you realize who she really is. And it's mm-hmm. it's very well done. Yeah. And Ruth is a good female character as well, I would say. Yes. This is my first time watching it. This is a dealer's choice for me. I like to reach for things that uh, I haven't seen before. So when we covered Laura, which is a movie I highly recommend if you haven't seen Laura, we covered that one. This movie has Vincent Price and Jean Tierney from that one. And that movie just really made me happy. I'd seen it before I started this podcast, but I came back to it and watched it again. I was like, my appreciation level just went way through the roof. And I said, what else does Jean Tierney have to offer? Oh, yeah. What are some other movies that she might have done? So because I was a big fan of hers in that. I'm not going to lie. She's talented. She's pretty. She's got the whole package. So I wanted to see what this movie was all about. And I didn't really I kind of went in expecting the sweet Jean Tierney from um, from like uh, where the sidewalk ends or from Laura. And uh, this is a very different role for her. So it actually hit me kind of wrong the first time I watched it. And like Dustin said, I needed a second viewing. I texted Chad and I said, I don't know how I felt about my own dealer's choice. And this was dark. This was heavy. This didn't feel good. I wasn't ready for that. And so I went back and watched it again, and I appreciated it so much more. I might have needed to prepare my own self for it a little better, because there are some unsettling moments in this. Once you know that that's what you're in for, you can really appreciate the characters and the situations a lot more. I'd say the rewatch value is very high on this. I think it's aging pretty well in general. I I haven't seen Joan Crawford's performance in Mildred, but I would say I have a hard time picturing anybody having done a better job than this. Once you've seen this movie... I don't think you'll forget it. It's like burning in your mind. There's some moments in this that are just so poignant that hmm. you just go, hmm, I'm not forgetting that ever. So, wow. so yeah. And it's not like you won't forget it as if it was some explosion or some heist. It, it, there, there are subtleties about it that you won't forget. I mean, even for the time, it's beautiful in Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are some times when you look at older movies and you think, yeesh my you know i wish i had my kid poke my eye out because it's hard to see uh, (laughs) it's hard to watch with how this looks but no it was it's a it was a pleasure to watch and part of that might be our flat screen tvs part of it might be whether or not you're able to get it in high def enough but i think i think it looked great we're here to open this up and this is a movie you do not want spoiled by the way so uh, if you can know as little about it go back and watch it and come back and enjoy the rest of this there will be spoilers that lie ahead so we will be back after these messages Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. 
Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. And this is your final warning. There will be the spoilers that lie ahead. So, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Lever to Heaven since 1945, do you want to refresh people's memories? Author Richard Harlan and socialite Ellen Barrett meet on a club car traveling through New Mexico. Coincidence would have it that they are arriving at a friend's cabin near Jacinto, where they relax and get to know one another, leading to a whirlwind anti-courtship followed by a speedy marriage. Not before meeting Ellen's comely cousin, Ruth, and their mother and a curt and quick run-in with Ellen's ex-fiance, Russell Quinton. Fast forward to a visit to Warm Springs, Georgia, where they meet Richard's younger brother, Danny, suffering the effects of polio. His condition improves, and together they retreat to Back of the Moon, a wilderness cabin on the lake. Along with a warning from Ellen's mother, it quickly becomes apparent that Ellen exhibits obsessive attachments. On display with her devotion to Richard, a dead ringer for her father, by the way, with whom she exhibited the same obsessive attachment. Her attention is also consumed with a jealousy of any time that Richard spends with Ruth. To solve her problems and remove the obstacles from her desires, Ellen allows Danny to drown while Richard is away. Later, after Ellen becomes pregnant, she throws herself down the stairs to kill their unborn child. Mild-mannered Richard confronts Ellen about Danny, and she reveals the truth, that she allowed Danny to drown and would do it again to get Richard all to herself. After Richard leaves her, she hatches a final plan to commit suicide and to stage her own murder at the hands of her cousin Ruth. Though Russell Quinton delivers a knockout, if not strictly just the facts examination of Richard and Ellen, the plan fails and Ruth is found not guilty, though she does confess her love for Richard under oath. As an accessory to the crime, Richard serves two years in prison, but returning to Back of the Moon to join Ruth in happy seclusion. Wow. There's a lot of ground to cover there. Well done. This is a uh, this generated a cult following. This is a subject of film criticism that's unique. It blurs genres. It has features of elements of film noir. I think Dustin already mentioned that. But Lucy and I talked about this on the Double Indemnity episode, what makes a film noir. This is not cleanly, as so clearly put into that category. It has hints of psychological thriller. But it also has a strong influence of something we don't have as much to this day. But at this point in time, there's romantic melodramas. Like that's a type of movie back then. What is this movie to you? I mean, it's it, it's it's fuzzy. It's hard to put it in a box in some ways. Does that make it lost in time? And how does that go down for you, Lizzie? Like when you get this movie, like it doesn't have a label really easily. No, it doesn't. And I think if I absolutely had to, if I was forced to label it, I would put it in probably more of the psychological thriller because there's so much psychological warfare going on on Ellen's side. And there is this dark undertone element to it, but I don't necessarily think that it gets lost in translation because I think really if you look at newer movies now, even newer noir movies, they tend to add 
streaks of other genres and like maybe some romance here or there or maybe some thrilling speed chases to kind of – I think nowadays there's a lot more juxtaposition in movies. So I think if anything, it feels a little bit ahead of its time. Mm, that's a good point. We blur genres more frequently now. That, that's interesting. Yeah. I think it's welcome. You, you had said, it does it feel lost in time? And Lizzie said it didn't, and I, I agree, but it does feel welcome when, it, when you see that there's a world chock full of rom-coms. Yes. And I love your term, romantic melodrama. It's what it is. Now, the psychological thriller aspect, if you shift the tone of it to being as sort of edge-of-your-seat, eye-twitching things that uh, really you can identify as far as emotional warfare, when you can really focus on that, you might say like, well, there's, it's not, the movie isn't made entirely of that. In fact, a lot of the movie is slice of life. A lot of the movie is just like simplicity things. Look, we just happened to meet at this lodge out in New Mexico. Uh, and then we go and visit my brother. And then we retreat to someplace nice. And here's my friend who used to live here. And he's going to play the guitar for us. There's a lot of it that's just like, oh, this is kind of just a story. Yes. And sometimes those stories are the ones that are set up in a way to be like, this is normal, but, and that's what I love is that the, the, what we get here is what is it that is making this Abby normal? And, <laughs> it is, and it is our very specific Ellen character who it's, it's on that second rewatch, I think is when I found them, but there are, you know, it might be the way that she changes subject. It might be the way she talks a lot and asks a lot of questions. Uh, we, we do have words that have come into the zeitgeist again, like gaslighting or um, a love bombing. And we have words nowadays that I, I guess the youngest generation might think like, oh, we named these. Like, no, this has existed for a while. Yep. And Sociopath kind of is, is still pretty, <laughs> is still pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and this, what, when you are provided that, when I was going back through, I said, is there, I, I was really looking for like, is there any foreshadowing that this is about to happen? And boy, there is. But on your first watch, and it was all of our first watch, you don't know where that is. And then when you see it again, it's, wow, this is great. For the first half of this movie, it is like a romantic melodrama of the era. I've not spent much time in this one, but this is a type of movie that's very much directed at a female audience. It's a love story. I was honestly enjoying it for what it was. Mm -hmm. But I saw some darkness in there, and it was how her mother talked to her, where like she was cold and distant and detached from her. And Ruth seemed really kind and warm, but like I thought maybe the mother had done something to her father in like foul play and that Jean was damaged and like she sided with her father and like Ruth was just unaware of everything because she was, you know, younger, more blissful or something like that. And boy, did I ever peg things wrong. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, I thought she was like Lizzie said, I thought they were going to go with the I'm the wound, psychologically wounded female and, you know, you're going to come in and whisk me away and, you know, it's, it's not none of that. <laughs> you know, she, it was almost too good to be true. And like, like you said, like she was smitten with him and she, she asked him to marry her. Like, I mean, she's a woman like this from a family of wealth, of her looks and stuff like that to just, you know, roll out the floor. I, I think Vincent Price even mentions it later. Now, I don't mean to sit there and say, are you, are you arrogant enough to say that a woman's just going to come in and like and fall over head over heels for you like three days after you've arrived? But that's why it's like almost too good to be true. Like Dustin said, looking back on it, but my introductions to who Jean Tierney was before my expectations were, I wanted to like her. So mm -hmm. it did not hit me until the 40 minute mark 
when she's asking about whether Danny could stay there and they could go to the back of the moon and he's, she's talking to his doctor and she slips. She goes, but after all, he's a cripple. Yes. And, yeah. and, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> like, <laughs> the way he says, looks at her. Yeah, yeah. The she says, I didn't mean to say that. And he goes, I'm sure you didn't. She drops the act for just a second. I love, so there were definitely Easter eggs that she was no good. And that's putting it lightly. You know, with the first time was when Richard is on the dock and the kids and Ellen go swimming away and then all of a sudden Ruth is up ahead and she's pruning and then they start to have a little conversation about how she is a member of the family, how she came to be adopted. And she's like, oh yeah, Mrs. Mrs. Burnett uh, adopted me. And he's like, why didn't you say Mr. and Mrs.? You just said Mrs. And she starts to get into it and then hesitates. And pulls back. And it's that one I knew that there was some kind of a story there, but I didn't exactly know what. I think I agree with you that my money was on the mom in that moment. But then it wasn't until she had that conversation with Russell that I knew there was some kind of layer of coldness with her because he's like, I loved you. She goes, that's a concession. And I'm still in love with you. That's a tribute. And I'll always be. Remember that. She's like, Russ, is that a threat? It's like she's just so cold towards him. And in that moment, you know something is up. The final nail in the coffin for me before things actually started happening was when she's like, I don't – they kept kind of going back and forth between calling – like saying like like maids and – you know, it it was kind of a little like uncomfortable, not really with the jargon that they used. But – They're like, I don't want any cooks. I don't want anybody to clean my house. I just, I don't want anybody to be in here except for you and me. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. she's got some skeletons in her closet. (laughs) And uh, she sure does. She sure did. I wish that we would have known a little bit more about the backstory there with her dad. Because I bet that would have been a really awesome prequel of like how (laughs) the ashes came to get in that urn. I think the term that they do use the word help and then they use the word servant, but not just not quite as hard of a word that servant can sometimes sound. Uh, but yeah, the ambiguousness of who Professor Dad was uh, is fine with me. Uh, I was not doing what you two were doing. I wasn't looking for what the darkness yeah. is. I was settling in to look at this cozy romance. And I was allowing myself to, when the hook comes to grab you, to be grabbed. And I do this frequently. Uh, is I don't try to solve the puzzle. Yeah. I let the movie surprise me with the puzzle solved the way it's intended. And that might not sound like a lot of fun. And I have friends that would, if they were watching with me, like, what's going on? And that's, I, I generally just stay silent. I'm like, let me, let, let's see what it is. So sometimes it's just what you see. And there may not be an explanation for it. It might not be trauma begets more trauma. It might not be a hidden artifact that explains mood swings. It might just be fatal attraction. It might just be Glenn mm-hmm. Close being wild. Or in this case, you know, it, it, this is just a, uh, a very particular type of... Uh, and I think the movie does a good job of explaining what it is that makes her that way, but we don't really have the why. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like my husband. Aaron's the exact same way. We're very different. It's almost like I'm competing with myself to try to figure out what the twist is, but Aaron loves to be surprised. And Ellen does not like to be surprised. Every- no. Richard's <laughs> trying oh, to be putting, sweet. That's putting it lightly, for sure. Yeah. There's also some mystery, like, you know, her cousin was adopted. 
and nobody goes to check on Ellen either. That that's another one of those misdirection things. It's just like he's like, she's been gone for like twelve hours, and then was like, she's fine. <laughs> it's like she's it's like, always all right. <laughs> yeah, it's just yes. like it's like there were enough detachments from the family that gave me the misdirection that I think is healthy and good as a viewer in this. Like Justin said, I was just settling in for the love story, and so I, you know this movie this movie shifts it. It doesn't take long for her family to come to visit to where it's just like, oh, she's not just judgmental against people who have you know handicaps like this is it gets it gets bad fast <laughs> so yeah. she wants them all to her to herself that it was kind of like a fatal attraction that is a good comparison yeah very much so like if i can't have him no one can but almost in reverse because by the act of committing suicide, she really is. I mean, I know she frames Ruth, but she's getting herself out of the way. So rather than having this, like, if I can't have him, no one can, it's more of a mentality of, you know, truly, like, I can't live without you. Like, it's it's you or bust. She wants to make sure that she wreaks havoc as a parting gift. That part matters. It's interesting you mentioned Fatal Attraction, Dustin. Fatal Attraction had an ending that was going to be a little more like this where I don't want to give too much about that movie away, but she was going to kill herself and frame mm-hmm. him for her murder. And they backed off of that. They didn't do it, which they should have, because it was a better ending. <laughs> Maybe no bunnies in that one. With winning. She wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wins in the, in the swimming she race. Everything. She yeah, she, she doesn't, yeah, they're not worried about her being gone for 12 hours. She'll be fine. Um, she's got this spirit, this sort of attitude. Uh, we learn from Ruth, like, oh, you tortured me growing up. You put me through so much. There's a part about it. It's like, well, is there winning from competitiveness or is there winning from needing to be in control? And that, I think, is pretty important to her character, controlling who is in the house or who is not, controlling the time that she spends with Richard or whoever else is. It's why when he gets back, and, you know, she's, she really starts to put the clamps on in a passive-aggressive way. What did you talk about? Oh, did you talk about me? Well, then what on earth did you talk about? Like, you need to tell me so that I know, because I cannot control if I do not know. And then uh, we do get a pretty cool explanation from, is it is Russell? Is that the right name? Russ? Yeah. Yeah, that's Vincent Price's character. <laughs> that yeah. surprised me for, for a Good minute because I forgot your name was Russell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so uh, Russell's, uh, it, during his sort of cross-examination, like we learned that she, she needs to possess the things she loves. That was a pretty important thing to say, is that it's not about enjoying what it is that I have or who was near me, is that it's almost that main character syndrome. Like, I must have this. This is, this is my story. And even if I'm gone, I'm going to have a lingering effect on the world that exists beyond me. It's interesting what yeah. you're talking about. Like she's not a typical femme fatale character. Like she kind of is in that she lures him into a deadly situation. But normally femme fatale kind of draws you in, will use you, kick you to the side of the curb and, you know, wants financial gain, power. That's not really her game. Like right. you said, she she wants to possess. Like, she really does. Yeah. yeah. The, the word I was thinking of is uh, the, I first encountered it in reading Stephen King's It. Uh, it's not brought up in the miniseries that we grew up with. It's not brought up in the newer movies, I think. But the idea of solipsism, where you believe you're the only actor and the only one that is thinking, this is written about about one of the side characters. You know how Stephen King does with characters. Uh, yes. But 
so the idea that it's all it really is all about her and it's not about ignoring the wants of others it's not believing that they have wants of their own um, now i literally just thought of that right now i wasn't thinking about that when i was watching the movie but it when you're talking about this reversal of the femme fatale you're right it really is the opposite and uh, but it is still about uh, control getting what you want and that is we think back to before our break that's something that will hold up for centuries is the sort of mental games played or the mental control wanted in any type of relationship. Yes. There's a monologue in Gone Girl, and I won't give any spoilers for that movie away, but she goes into this monologue about how men always want the cool girl. She's like, you know, men want the cool girl. They want the girl that's going to be able to drink beer with you and eat binge pizza, but somehow miraculously still be a size two and just never get angry at anything and just be cool girl. And she's like, it is so exhausting being the cool girl. And that is, you can tell very much that she has that facade and it breaks a little bit in the doctor's office when she slips and it's like, well, he's a cripple. He's a cripple. You know, you can tell she. <laughs> and the doctor's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. From the moment that they meet and they have this very charming meet cute that, you know, she recognizes the resemblance that he has to her father. And it's like from that moment on, she sees something in him that she had previously latched on to her father and she just becomes completely one track minded on sinking her teeth into him. And so it is interesting after watching it a second time, questioning like what was actually her real personality and what was her trying hmm. to hook, line, and sinker this guy into, you know, her guises. Yeah, how does she like her eggs? Yes. Yes, exactly. All roads lead back to Runaway Bride. She's still charismatic when she needs to be, though. Like when she's on the train. Yes. If she's sitting there staring at you, going like, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm staring at you. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, like he's he's in, like he's locked in, like you know. Totally. I'm pretty sure that if a single man is being approached by a woman and be like, oh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm just staring at you. It's like no one's gonna be upset by that. <laughs> it's a, that's not the natural order. So like, yes. like it's, um, it's almost like walking out of your doorstep and it's like, there's a pot of gold on my front doorstep today. What other great things are going to happen to me? So, that's um, a great day. Yeah. I even liked it when he's like, uh, I hope you don't find this too flattery. He's like, oh, but I like flattery. Go on. She's very, she's got this very charming, yes. like, you know, like she, she, she has that ability. In fact, even when she slips in the doctor's office, the senior talking about Lizzie, but Richard walks in a little bit later mm -hmm. and she just goes like, Richard, good news. We can take Danny back to the moon with us, like pivot instantly. Like, she turns it right back on. Yeah. And she's, she's very charming. And for all the, and if you watch the second time, you're sitting there going like, well, Richard doesn't know the conversation. Like the first time you watch it, you're kind of like, yeah, I didn't like that. And then, you know, you're like, well, Richard doesn't know. Like she's putting on a very good act. She seems to like him a lot. There was something on the first watch through I had uh, when she is helping Danny put on sunscreen or sunblock or even suntan oil. Who knows? We didn't know that much about sun protection back then. They're talking about going to Bar Harbor and he wants to go with them. The, all three of us can go because that's what kids want. We want to do this all together. Oh, I, I promise we'll only be separated for a short amount of time. No, I think I'll just wait to go with you two. And there was something that I picked up. It was subtle. Maybe it's not accurate, but I just wanted to pose it to you two, is that in the world of social demeanor, 
and how you react to perceived slight or a nudge into here's how I want you to think that the kryptonite might be talking to a child who will not accept the social norms of high society. Remember where she comes from. So you cannot subtly guilt someone. You cannot give them the hint that actually, no, Danny, we don't want you there for like, just give us three days. You can't do that. He won't pick up on it. And I'm not going to say that led to that tragedy immediately afterward, but I noticed that her guiles did not work on Danny. In fact, Danny's charm of his own was really needed in this movie. And I, I actually think that his performance of what kind of character that could be was refreshing to see in a world of manipulation and every sentence has a bit of a barb to it or a danger to it that he's just swell. Oh, I love him. I know. He's swell is a perfect word for him. But no, you hit the nail on the head. You could not be more right. I always joke around with my friends that don't have kids or even my friends that do that, you know, nobody humbles you quite like your kids. And I think that Danny is in a way kind of humbling her and that sense of kind of just really trying to drive the point home, like you said, that this isn't going to work. Whatever you have on her or whatever you're trying to do with him, it's just not going to work with him. He's not your audience and he doesn't understand those social cues, just like you said, but he is so sweet. There, were, I I did not see that coming when I, that whole dynamic first started. I, of that course- That's hard. You, um, yeah. I mean, you start to see traces of it eventually. Like you realize that, okay, Danny's going to have to go in some way, shape or form. Like they're really teeing this up. So luckily I think we all in some way, shape or form can build and manage the expectation that we're going to lose Danny. But I would never have been able to have called that. And I also think for the times, I have to imagine that that scene was really, really risque to show in the forties. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat, really freaking out, worried about how they were going to show that. It was just so hard. Like she convinced him. Like she's like, you don't want to give up now. You should keep swimming. Oof, you know, like yeah. like oh, so you're bad. watching it unfold. You know it's going to happen. This is much more jarring than like a horror movie jump scare or something like that. Like you're watching this terrible thing unfold, and, and you're just wanting Richard to come back and swim out and get him so bad, or to have her change her mind and realize, oops, what am I about to do? Kind of thing. I thought the change your mind was going to happen. Yes. Uh, it was either Thorne was around or it, someone was around late to have her take the last minute action that did not save. But I thought, oh, are we going, is she going to, you know, in a sense, like save the day here? And uh, no, it was too late. It, but yeah, that was killer. He even came back up like calling out like, Ellen, Ellen, like I need your oh, help. And, like, so and, like, bad. I, she's so cold. She's just sitting there waiting for it to happen. I mean, it's. It's awful. And then it goes quiet. The bubbles just come up from the lake and the, the camera's very still. And it all happens actually pretty quickly, but it feels like it takes forever to unfold. Like when you're watching it. Like I said, the first time I watched it, I was just so, oh, I'm mortified. What's going on here? I had to come back to it a second time just to like process all that. It was so, such a sharp deal to take on. And I'm not going to lie. When she did it to her own child later, Yes, Lizzie, you're right. She cued it up and gave you signs there too. She and Ruth are talking and she just seems like, I hate the little devil. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's never happened in the entire history of human beings. Like, it's just, oh, I mean, we're not talking about like, I want to give them up for adoption or, you know, like, this isn't the right time for me. It's, I just, 
you know, she's still that focused on Richard. When she picks out the shoes that have that particular heel on them, that is giving you a clue that something is up. And she changes into like this light blue nighty, and she's got yes. these heels on. And then the camera shows the focus on her feet, putting them like, like the rug, getting tied in the rug. It's planned. It's articulated to put yourself in that kind of risk. And Lizzie, you mentioned risque. Like this is something that could not, especially this is 80 years ago. This is something that almost like, I would imagine people walking out of the theater at, at oh, this kind of thing. Like, how could you show that? I'd rather watch a monster movie. I'd rather watch a vampire suck blood, or I'd rather watch a zombie rise from the grave and see a mother kill her unborn child. By throwing herself down the steps, borderline yes. risking her own life. Yes, the so. risk involved too. Uh, so, but yeah, calculated. Even the pain that she holds, like she, she does lose some control by falling down the stairs. But all of that performance is just to keep things under her control. Yes. It's almost like it doesn't matter what happens because I chose this. You know, she can at least find some comfort in the fact that whatever happens to me, no matter how long I'm in the hospital or what kind of injuries I will sustain, it all falls under the umbrella of something that I have chosen. I think you're right. It really just boils down to wanting to have control. But that scene was rough. And oh my gosh, I mean, it's just both of them are these really horrible forms of evil in the sense where you do have to question, like you said, Dustin, is it that she is just so mentally unwell that she only sees things from her lens? She's completely incapable of seeing how somebody else would feel almost in a sociopathic sense. Or is she truly just that deranged that she imagines that there's going to be grief and just doesn't care? Right. Just It's rough. It's hard to watch it's hard to think about i think she knows what she's doing is wrong but she just doesn't mm -hmm. care which i think categorizes as yeah. the sociopath you're actually right because later when she's confronted she's like yes i did i let him drown and i would do it again so i think you're absolutely right i think that she knows she has that moral compass that just isn't pointing north <laughs> she would have preferred to have not killed danny but given that the situation like i'm gonna make some hard choices here you know, like, it's like, you know, like, there is no stopping me. Unfortunately, that willpower is not properly <laughs> geared at something healthy. It's, it's very yeah. unhealthy. It's interesting, the appropriate title there, that the film's first title was from William Shakespeare's Hamlet, in which the ghost urges Hamlet to not seek vengeance against Queen Gertrude, uh, but rather to leave her to heaven. I'm going to just walk off and let heaven take her. That's where the title comes from. Hmm. It's appropriate. I don't think that I, that came across to me. I would like to have had that written on the screen at the end from Hamlet. <laughs> yeah. Some context. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like when there's a motto or something written for us to take home. I, I just, hey, since we recorded with Nathan last, I have literally thought to myself, uh, the mediator between the head and the hands is the heart. I think yeah. about that in my daily life. I, I would have appreciated that being on the card. Yeah, maybe. I'm not a very smart movie watcher, but I would have appreciated that at the end, you know, before the credits roll. Uh, and by the way, this movie does it a third time. She frames Ruth for murder, which is pretty terrible by sacrificing herself by taking arsenic and setting up a very good crime scene. It's very right. convincing. It's terrifying to watch the court scene. By the way, this is a good court scene. Like, I like yeah. courtroom dramas. This is a good court scene. Vincent Price is like owning all of that. You sit there and you go, oh, no, 
she's too good at her job. She's mm. too good at framing him for murder. And I found myself in that sit there going like, I have been through killing Danny. I have been through killing her child. And I've been through this. And I'm sitting there going like, I feel so bad for Richard's character at this point. Mm, Most I characters know. don't endure all of this in one movie. As a viewer, we don't have to endure this much for one movie. So there's two things I want to say here. I want to definitely double down on that courtroom scene is phenomenal. And I think we have to suspend our knowledge of the procedure of how cross-examinations work. And sometimes it can be very much like the process. Uh, I was watching this with a friend and my friend was like, why isn't anybody objecting? Uh, now, from the frame story, we know that the attorney representing Richard, or I guess technically representing Ruth here, is, is ex explaining this in flashback in a way. I, I actually don't think of this movie being told in flashback, even though an hour and 41 minutes of the hour and 45 are technically a story being told. Uh, but I don't think of the movie in flashback. Mm-hmm. But the passion of Russell's words and what he, the questions he's asking, you would definitely think like objection relevance, but it's so important that no one stops him. I love it. I don't think we were given the weight of what their relationship was before Richard shows up. And that's okay. In fact, it seems cold uh, when he, takes to, he gets the telegram and he goes out to New Mexico. I think he's on screen for three minutes. And it's like, oh, well, there's Vincent Price, but there he goes. And, and it's not until his, you know, his big, you know, nearly movie-stealing scene at the end to bring that up. Uh, and so it was, it was really, really wonderful that we, we got it. And I was able to just sort of like, wow, this is really captivating a jury. There's, there's so many things that are going on in Gene Tierney's real life. I feel like kind of come into this performance i'm a little unclear about the timeline of this but jfk actually was dating her and oh, wow. you know he's and he said he wanted to go on to be president and he wanted to be the first catholic president and he just couldn't marry a divorced woman she was married at the time that this was so maybe that hadn't just happened yet but she was with the politician herself so this is kind of foreshadowing what would happen in her own life hmm. and so he leaves her she is a big name at the time like the name may not have the sticking power that like a Marilyn Monroe has now where it will be remembered for centuries and centuries and centuries she is an icon for her time it's interesting she's married to the person who does the wardrobe for this movie he does the wardrobe for her in many many of her movies she unfortunately gives birth to a child with the tragedy so she used to go around raising more bonds for people unfortunately she had contracted some kind of fever that, that gave her birth complications and so she gave birth to a child that was not a functioning it's my understanding it had it was blind and unable to function so very intensive needs it was very hard for her and she had a, such a hard time dealing with this so unfortunately she also simultaneously is about to head into a divorce off of this and so one of the reasons we don't see her as much in the 50s is unfortunately for Jean she's very talented but she has mental problems herself she gets to the point where she has mental breakdowns and she blacks out. Mental health was not the same back then. And they gave her electrical shock. She tried to leave, you know, to escape. And they gave her more electrical shock. She had memory loss. She eventually gets out of the program. But I mean, the damage is done. I mean, so she has a small kind of comeback in her career later. But I mean, her life is unfortunately really tragic. It does have a happier ending where for people like this, they might put you in like a low level job. She's just working at a department store. And so somebody comes in and just like, are you Jean Tierney? And she goes, 
Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I used to be married to Hedy Lamar. She knows you, right? So this guy is like a super wealthy oil man. And he marries her and they, they're married for a long, long time. She said, my life's still pretty good. I have a husband who loves me even when I'm crazy. Oh. So, so she, yeah, so she did have a rough run shortly thereafter this. So I hate hearing bad things happening to seemingly good people because she generally seems like she was a really nice lady. And unfortunately, just shaking somebody's hand the wrong way hurt her and her child. And, you know, this is just a real tragedy. This movie is dark. And I think some of the stresses that are in her life, you can channel that into the character. So I think some of that pain and damage is unfortunately perhaps channeled real damage. Just a theory. And I think it's very likely that, gosh, that's a, that's a really conflicting juxtaposition, you know, to be in a position to play a character that's going to throw herself off the stairs when in reality she's probably mourning the, I don't know how long her, her child, what kind of a life her child was able to live. But I think that speaking as a parent, you know, I'm fortunate enough that my kids are healthy, but I think that you do have this like dream and expectation of what life is going to be like raising your kids. And I think that, you know, people with disabilities are able to live beautiful, wonderful, fulfilling lives. And of course, there's such a wide spectrum of disabilities. But I think in general, as a parent, you just want your kids to thrive and have every opportunity for joy. And I imagine that being having a child with such an intensive needs probably did have a lot of, there's a lot of grief associated with that as a parent, I imagine. That's an interesting juxtaposition to kind of throw into her character. So I imagine she did channel a lot of that. Yeah, it's, it's not a happy story off the camera. And you know what? The role was almost not even hers. They almost gave it to Rita Hayworth. She declined it. Certainly had all the beauty to play the part, but I think Jean Tierney is a better actress, but that's just my opinion. So I'm glad it stayed this way. It's got to be a challenge to switch between, we mentioned her charisma, charisma so much that she can get a boy with polio to stand up and swim, which is unexplained. Well, you nearly willed that boy into walk. Apparently she did. <laughs> So aside from that, we can recognize in our own lives when we have to go from one emotion to another and there's a shock, how frequently she does it in this movie on screen. Now, there are times when it's not our wardrobe, but there are times that I believe our makeup artist here does a really great job, whether it's the lips looking more pursed because there's a smaller, more narrow amount of lipstick on. Or uh, the eyes squinted or not based on whatever this scene is. And if we don't have a chance to say it later, I'm sure we all will have something. But, you know, her wardrobe is spectacular throughout this movie. But it's really a testament to the makeup. And then through the stages of her life, when I believe mild-mannered Richard does say, you're acting like a shrew, which might be like the wildest he gets before he finally confronts her about Danny's death. But you know, wh what's going on? I, you know, your family is here. Why are you acting this way? And, so, and, then, and then she becomes, she tries to become the sympathetic character. I don't know what's wrong with me. I, yeah, help me. The, the appeal to his generosity in terms of being able to listen or share emotions. She is able to deftly move between these manipulative ways of using her own emotions. And that must be difficult for anyone. But for, I think that's, that must have been factored into why she was nominated for this award. I do want to mention, we've mainly talked about Ellen, which is deservedly so. I think Richard 
in the way that you think of comedy duos as there's kind of the wacky man and the straight man, Richard is our straight man emotionally, mm-hmm. that he is steadily pleasant and affable throughout. There's no leaning towards being like lascivious or like kind of, you know, wanting to be a skirt chaser, not at all. He is polite. He's accomplished. He, he's, he's absolutely mild mannered. And uh, when you, uh, somebody that you would root for and somebody that you would say, he doesn't seem to be doing anything objectionable. And so because he is exactly that, and because she is exactly objectionable in almost all ways, uh, I thought that was a smart move. To we we don't have any idea or inkling of him being a bad guy at all. So it was it was really something that uh, you are funneled towards recognizing that it's just Ellen's situation that you're dealing with. It's not a response to his actions or emotions. What's also weird is for a villain, I still kind of sympathize with her. This isn't like a purely evil villain. She's doing evil things. It's a tragic character in some ways. So is that me? Did you sympathize with her at all, Lizzie? No. I mean, I think I, I shouldn't say like a resounding no. I appreciate where I think you're coming from because I think and I have compassion, I think, for all people. And like, I think that evil is not born. It's It's taught and learned over time through all different kinds of stimuli and things like that. But, you know, people aren't inherently born evil, I think. So I think it's this kind of idea of like, Helen, who hurt you? Like, who did this to you that has made you develop such unhealthy attachments that's then led to you literally just eliminating the people around you like they're chess players? So like, I think from from like a psychological perspective, I do have compassion for her but i think at the same time i i appreciate the title so much more of leave her to heaven and just because it is kind of that mentality of like sometimes you have a rotten person in your life and the best thing that you can do is just let god handle it because i think that she's really really rotten to her core i think it's a gift to us that they don't explain why she is why she yes is. That it's just that she is she just loves too much. What's wrong with her? She loves, she too, loves much. too much. It's the Michael Myers effect, right? Like we'll never fully know what understatement why he does what he does, but he does it and we keep buying tickets. You know, it's the same. I, I totally agree. There's something about not having a motive that is almost more frightening. Dustin, you mentioned something that made me think I, the whole time I'm watching the movie and I'm watching Richard, I'm thinking about a story that my granddaddy told me about my great great granddaddy that he never ever saw him angry and that when he would sit there with his wife Cora whenever he was really really mad the most angry he would ever get he would just say Cora I just wish you'd hush and like that was the meanest that he ever got throughout his entire lifetime just from what my granddaddy was able to see that is Richard. I mean, that's Harland. I mean, that is him like to his core. And I agree. It's so intentional because they really, really want to drive the point home. Like you said, you said it perfectly that it's like, this is Ellen's problem. This isn't any kind of reaction or retaliation. I'm with you guys though. I'm surprised this has all gone down as well. This movie is massively successful in the box office. In 1944, there was a big bidding war for the book. Ben Ames Williams, it's his book. And he gets $100,000 for the rights to do it, which is an exorbitant fee for an unpublished work at this time. Bidding wars between studios got it. And then because of this, later Williams has a mystery novel about a woman's obsessive love for her husband. Again, he goes back to that well. 
And it's his best-selling book and a huge success for him for that. Fox had an adaptation for that later. When you read about this, this is one of the big moments in cinema history. Technicolor is not used on movies like this. Noir movies, melodramas, romances, dramas, court scenes, they're black and white. Technicolor was made here, and it's not just, oh, the story is now in color. Dustin kind of mentioned this to some degree. It changes everything about how you experience this. Noir movies are normally cast in really dark, shadowy things with perspectives and stuff. And this movie has noir elements, but it is shot. And this goes to show you, Brian has told us before, you know, noir doesn't have to be black and white. So this proves that. The scenery is beautiful. They go to on-location scenery. The clothes are vibrant. The color is very vibrant. They use it, and they use it very wisely. I think it's really interesting as we go from this very happy, like when they're in Georgia at Warm Springs, it looks like a very nice care facility. There's a sense of happiness to it. When they go to Back of the Moon, this, it seems really peaceful and lush. The lake's beautiful until we go to Bar Harbor. And then all the tones desaturate. Absolutely. The colors go down. Mm-hmm. The patterns yes. become oppressive in the wallpaper at Bar Harbor. Obscured by the fog of the northern east coast. I mean, that's what Bar Harbor like has a reputation for in a way. I mean, Bar Harbor can be nice. It didn't look nice. I've been there. It was nicer when I was there than it was here. But I mean, like, you know, when he's sitting on the rock, sad, and they've got the matte painting of the house behind, you know, that's a tone shift for this movie. The colors help convey the moods so well with this. As Justin mentioned, Jean's red lips. She does a lot with her eyes. She does a lot with her lips. And the intense color draws you to these moments. And she does great acting. I mean, I think she does a good job of switching her moods and how she conducts herself. But she Mm -hmm. also does a great job with her face. And the Technicolor does all this stuff really well. I think she does a good job of face acting in Laura, which is black and white, but this is a whole nother thing. Like, this is a big moment, just the fact that we have Technicolor. Yeah. There's a couple bright scenes in Bar Harbor, and they are almost jarring in where their placement is, and it's meant to be a shift, a, a, a hard shift away. I believe Im- almost immediately after we learn that the unborn child doesn't make it, we see Ellen swimming in the surf, the tide, and running up with a big smile on her face. That is a bright scene, and it shows her absolute utter lack of like remorse. I won. That, th- th- this is another interaction that I kind of finessed. There's another one where we have, and this one it isn't quite the same shock or shift, when Richard is talking to Ruth outside when she's gardening. Uh, that is... In a way, I think a different use of color here is like, look at this glimpse of what maybe could be. I don't mm-hmm. think we're really led to believe that there is this strong connection between Ruth and Richard throughout the movie. I think we just have glimpses. Are you sure? I feel like when the clothes fell out of the suitcase for the baby that they went to go buy clothes for. and <laughs> It's like, an hour and like 20 minutes in. It, no, that's I'm, true. That's true. It's oh, yeah. But, but- by that point, by that point, I think he, yes. I think he suspected her very much and he was hurt very much from her. Yes. And I do, I do think he was connecting with her at that point. I think she liked him in New Mexico. Yes. At the pool. Agreed. And, she, and because she liked him, and we've all been here in this case, is you're like, you're my type of person. I would really like you. I'm with my person. And so I'm kind of going to put yes. some distance here because I don't need that temptation. Yeah. yeah. And so, but I, I think there's a, in, in a way, in a, in a world brand new to color, that it can be used in, in several different ways, even though I don't think we're playing too much with uh, different colored filters or anything. 
I felt like the backdrops, gosh, New Mexico looked fantastic. Maine looked fantastic. Almost everything about the exteriors were great. I do have my qualms with the interiors of some of these places, but hey, it was 80 years ago. <laughs> well, you, you, you like what's real is what it, that answer is. All of the houses are matte paintings in the distance. And then they're two-dimensional sets when you get up close, like just standing outside the house at Bar Harbor or the back of the moon. They're too flat. They don't have the depth and they're being lit. That's right. They look like sets if you look closely. Again, this is an evolution from stage to film. This is just where we are. But the interiors are also sets, to your point, Dustin. So right. I would like to see them be in an actual cabin and stuff. And I think this if were filmed later, they would. Lighting being still an issue. I'm, I'm with you. But the exteriors, that lake is gorgeous, by the way. I like the set in New Mexico a lot more. I don't know, just maybe it's the architect in me. Russell, it is the architect in you because I thought that that house was dreadful. It, it, really? it, was, <laughs> it, it, it was a house only an architect could love. And that's, okay. that's, a, that's a positive thing. For you. John Stahl, the director, though, this is his only color movie. So kudos to him for going into doing it so well. Lizzie, John Stahl is actually known for, again, romantic melodramas. He's a women's movie kind of guy like dramas that are romance heavy maybe what the first half of this movie was where does he conjure up the ability to do the psychological thrillers so much i mean he's good at it <laughs> yeah i i mean i still stand by what we had talked about earlier that i think it's so interesting the slow burn of this movie you really don't know what you're getting you truly think that there's this meet cute and they're, you know, going to spread the father's ashes. And even though there's little mild Easter eggs that things aren't quite what they seem, you just never fully anticipate things going in the direction that it goes in. So I have no idea where that inspiration comes from. But I just, I think, you know, we all want, you know, talking about the, the books later that would go on and get really successful sales. I, I think that jealousy is an emotion that I think we all can relate to in some way, shape, or form, whether it's jealousy in the professional world or jealousy with, you know, maybe your next door neighbor having more than you. But I think that ultimately the one thing that we all kind of crave for is connection. So I think love is the kind of the low-hanging fruit there when it comes to jealousy. And I think that we can all relate to it in some way, shape, or form. And I think we as consumers like love watching things that feel like a hyperbolic version of something that we've experienced. And so yes. I just think that he kind of, he really just capitalizes on that. He takes, okay, listen, like we've all been there. Like we all know what it feels like to feel, men talk about it a lot where when a baby comes into the picture that there's this stress and this fear of now the woman's attachment to this child is going to start to take some attention away and like her body isn't necessarily meant for, you know, sharing an intimacy right now. It's meant for growing this child and sometimes some jealousy can ensue. And I think that, you know, on some way, shape, or form, we all can relate to what that feels like. And so I just think he took that and kind of just flipped it and went with the woman being the the jealous one in this particular scenario and just really went there and it paid off. I think he's paid attention throughout his life at the things yes. you nailed it here where you said like we, we've been through, we've all been here, right? That he's taking those moments and, and I think you said like hyperbolic, that's what makes this movie stand out. And it's not until I started putting my intention on those things that my star rating, in fact, moved, that my, my meter moved because I was like, no, there's something here that is 
when we're when we're appreciating these small things in life normally because they're on the big screen and they're being done with some stakes and some possibilities of things that of course you know we're in 1945 we wouldn't possibly imagine going this far but it's not just the story you have to convey these emotions well enough and i don't know anything about how many takes something took but you know when we have a little bit of russell's background where he told us like hey she was going through some stuff and she was going through what you know much worse than many would have ever wished for i've said it before but either he caught lightning in a bottle, or it was a culmination of several years of paying attention to mm-hmm. what things should look and feel like. And I think if you are paying attention when you watch this movie, that's what you'll come away with. Yes. I mean, one thing that you know Stephen King, I think, is able to do so brilliantly, which perhaps maybe was something that he was inspired by by people who had you know authors that had come before him was trying to, to take something like you said that feels very normal and making it frightening and i think going back to the example of of the baby like i think you know at some point i think that either a husband or a wife mom or a dad can probably experience some kind of jealousy but in like a healthy functioning brain like that jealousy would not get translated in a way that would ever be like, oh, the solution is to remove that. It's, you know, it, that's just not how I think a, I don't like using the word normal, but that's how like a quote normal brain would operate. It's understanding that there's enough room and enough space for everybody and that, you know, your heart just gets bigger. It doesn't, you know, the love doesn't change or shift. But for somebody like Ellen who cannot understand that, she just sees all these things as obstacles. And so it really is just that like hyperbolic version of what do you do with this jealousy when you are, you know, a dangerous person that doesn't know how to deal with their emotions. Lizzie, I, I think there's something else here that I didn't think about now until we got into this discussion, which is. What would most movies do with jealousy or with uh, coveting? It would result in a fight, a, yeah. a screaming match, yeah. or a or 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 some type of some type of large event that requires a fallout and a reconciliation. And in a way, this movie teases you by saying, "Nah, you're just going to get the cold calculation of what this monster will do." You don't. You aren't rewarded with a fight. Yes. And I didn't think I'd be saying that, but this movie makes you think about how naturally we would think jealousy results in some type of fallout, but instead here we have murder and framing and manipulation and all the other terrible things we've talked about. That's wild. You guys kind of brought it up, so I did want to correct myself. I finally got it out of my notes. So it was yes, forty three. She was pregnant with her daughter Daria. She was prematurely born pounds and uh she had contracted rubella while she was supporting the troops and going out meeting people to raise money for war bonds etc daria was born deaf partially blind with cataracts and severely mentally disabled and then unfortunately her marriage with uh, ola cassini who does the wardrobe here is her husband yep exactly uh tyranny and he separate in 46 but they're having bad times and they're steering into that the kennedy stuff i mentioned does come later they meet on the set of Dragonwick in 46. So take all my Kennedy stuff, just that, that's, that's later. But everything else I said is true. This is all very present and going on in her life when she's filming both Laura, which is the movie she does prior to this, and then this. So 
I mean, it's amazing that she's laying down such great work. And it's a shame that she becomes institutionalized because I have to admit, this is an actress I'm really a big fan. The director, I did not see any of his other movies at this point. I'm curious because this is so good. This is late in his career, but apparently some other movies that if you do want to see more from John Stoll, Imitation of Life got nominated for an Oscar in 34, Magnificent Obsession in 35, and When Tomorrow Comes in 39, and The Keys to the Kingdom in 44 are his signature movies in addition to this. So I think he does an amazing job of directing here. I think the tension's built really well, and the characters are so well done. You could not take a general overview of this movie and use it to convince me to watch the movie. But if it's got his name attached, then I would say, now, hold on a second. There might be a lot of stuff here, especially from such a bygone era, that would be so intriguing to see on screen. Now, we talked about this a little bit. Oleg Cassini. Lizzie, do you like the wardrobe of this era? If I, if I recall, you like some of the stuff that we saw in Double Indemnity. This is different, though. Yes. I mean, this stuff is classic. I mean, the outfits that she's wearing, truly, I, actually, right now on TikTok, there is a huge trend going on right now that's, they call it Coastal Grandma. It's just like <laughs> this like really chic. And also the show Succession has brought out a lot of this too, where it's like this stealth wealth kind of labelless clothing where it's just really nice, chic, timeless pieces rather than having like sparkles and labels in your face. So that really is like what seems to be trending like today. And so a lot of the stuff that you're seeing some like some of these huge A-list actors and actresses wearing are really mirroring a lot of Jean's wardrobe. You know, she's wearing these like fabulous white pantsuits and, you know, not for nothing, but, you know, in that scene, the Danny scene, there was a part of me where the fourth wall broke for me because I'm watching everything happen. And then I stopped to think, well, you know what? This is really horrible, but she looks so chic right there. Like, I'm sorry. I hate to say it, but like like her white coat and her sunglasses and her hat game is really strong. I just, Mm -hmm. I- who looks like that when they go to row a boat for somebody? Like that, that coat is, uh, that looks like a very expensive coat. She's clearly a lady with some funds. Honestly, probably my mom. My mom, my mom's name is Nancy. We all call her Fancy Nancy. She's just like, and just because that's her personality. She just looks fabulous all day, every day. You've never seen the woman look lower than like a, an 8.5 on the scale from 1 to 10. 10 being like a completely fabulous. That's just Nancy. So she probably would. If you could convince her to go on a boat, she probably would look like that. I have a question on, on the spectrum of like, is Cornell Wilde like an everyday man, Lizzie? Like, is, like, is this a Tom Hanks that we're getting here? Or is, is this guy something that other women around him would be drawn to him at this time. Help decipher that for me. Our Richard? Yeah, I Richard. think. I mean, I find him so charming. I think he's just absolutely adorable. And I'm not into the bad guy. You know, I've never really have been. I want a good man. I married a good man. I, I feel like it's just... It's not fun to be with the bad guy that's going to string you along and eventually just break your heart. I just feel like there's something so wholesome about Richard's character. And, you know, in he also like the way that they flirt and turn a phrase with one another, it's just he's playful and he's fun. You know, he isn't just this super serious stuffy guy, which I think Russell Mm-hmm. in my opinion, seemed to be, you know, he, I think he, you know, he of course wasn't shy about confessing his love, 
But I think that when it came down to it- He did say, can you dump me after the election? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true. Very calculated kind of love. But, you know, he's very serious and stuffy. And I think, you know, Richard is just, he's playful. And I mean, even the way he dedicates the book to Ruth, you know, to the gal with the hoe, you know, he's just like, he's got this kind of skip in his step always. And it's only really until the very end of the movie that, Ruth says it perfectly that he's become a shadow of himself. So yeah, I don't know. I think his he's timeless, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I get the gist that he's not as wealthy as the family that he's marrying into, but I get the gist that he's been successful in his own right. He's already made it as a writer, it looks like. So she happens to be reading his book. It wasn't on purpose, I don't think. She falls asleep reading his book. <laughs> she doesn't like his writing. At one point she even says, I hate your chapter. I hate all your chapters. They take Yes, away. I know. <laughs> First six minutes of this movie, and you're thinking this might be a, like a little more of a comedy. We don't go that path. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I love him. He's kind of like a, an American version of Colin Firth, I feel, maybe, you know, because hmm. he's just kind of just feels like this very somewhere in the middle between blue collar and white collar, a little clumsy, but also a little goofy, but ultimately just kind of good people it's it's really i don't i don't really think i can recall it's a wit he's got he's got he's got a wit i can't recall watching colin firth in any role where i disliked him from the first third of the movie i thought his acting performance was not very demanding and it was pretty lightweight but boy he picks it up at the end when he has to deal with the tragedy and when he confronts her gene's a powerhouse of acting in this movie but towards the end of this movie i have to say my opinion changed because i even writing down is like Anybody could have been playing this part in the early going. Second pass, I saw more from him there, but he turns it on in the end. Dustin, what about you? We were talking about wardrobe. A lot of white in this movie. Yeah, we do have it. And juxtaposed with some of our, you had mentioned the lighting, which I had noticed in this movie. I'm not going to say I noticed it all the time, but I, I do think the white is great. We've got some in New Mexico, in the lodge, uh, we've got a lovely white piece that she wears. Mainly, we're talking about tyranny here gene crane's character ruth's wearing white at the end when he when he comes up on the boat that's right but i didn't want to talk about that yet until we got to our superlatives oh. but i will say that uh with the white that's worn throughout she also pairs a uh kind of a white top with some peach colored pants like some kind of lounging which flatter her without being form-fitting like there's a bunch of great stuff and you mentioned she wears a white fur coat going through new mexico now we know new mexico isn't all hot in fact there's a lot of areas that are quite elevated it gets cold at night jacinto is too there was something that i think we had to be shown that she is a socialite because i don't think you're told i don't think where the money comes from her dad's a professor that's not necessarily the highest paying gig i don't know where that comes from but i think that was the amount of outfits we get yeah and the quality of them this is how we know what they are or what she is I will say there is something special. This is not my hidden gem, but I kind of liked it. Is if you're on a streaming service and you're scrolling through tiles, typically you get kind of a like a movie poster, like a little. You it kind of looks like the poster. Uh, the one for Leave Her to Heaven is just her face with the sunglasses on, and the only time she wears the sunglasses is during that scene with Danny. And you're thinking, oh, that's kind of a cool look. And then once you get a feel for what the picture is. Then you see that tile, you're like, oh, you look at it much, much differently. Very true. I think the white that we saw that Barbara Stanwyck wore in Double Indemnity, I read 
when we were breaking that down. It said in noirs, white is not all that it seems. Oftentimes, your femme fatales and your bad guys will wear white, which is weird because that's kind of the opposite. We did, you know, in the killers, she's wearing a black dress. But here again, we we have the bad guy wearing white. It's very pristine, red lips. I think there's a coolness to it, a detached sense to it. She does wear a lot of outfits. Uh, mm -hmm. Maternity outfits are decked out too. I think one that it caught my eye is when she's making the meal for him and saying, only I'm going to serve you. She's dialed up the housewife. Look, for, you know, like the frilly pink top with the checked skirt. It's a little out of character for everything else she's doing, but she's like dialing it up so heavily there. Like, look what I can do. On the soundtrack, by the way, it's ominous and it's heavy, which this movie's heavy, but also it's really quiet in the scene when Danny goes down in the lake, but it's really bold and it builds as she's about to fall down the stairs. So they take different strategies with the music at different parts of this movie. I felt like the variety was actually nice. One thing that I do really love about older movies, specifically noir films, is that the soundtrack typically, and it's really more of a score, I suppose, than a soundtrack, but yes. they tell you how you're supposed to feel. The music really is almost a legend or a key to be like, okay, in this moment, we're supposed to feel stressed. And I think the lack thereof when Danny is finally under and the bubbles are surfacing is because they quite literally are imagining that your viewer is just mouth agape, like, what just happened? What did I just watch? And where do we go from here? So I even think that the absence of music was super powerful. And nothing necessarily to be memorable, but it really helped feel the story. Yeah. No, but I think with a story like this, you're not going to get the kind of song that you're going to just hum in your head and carry away. Yeah, that's right. Dustin, when we covered Laura, that score was really good. The the thing that it almost sounds hard to even say the words, but like death is when you're dead, you're quiet. And when you're drowned, you're really quiet. And that really stood out. Uh, I actually did think a couple times that our composer here needed to dial it down a bit there were huge brassy and big bravado style like when she's dropping the ashes perhaps hits yes. now now that was purposeful but the whatever the allusion to hippolyta or whatever it is th that stuff makes sense for a, i think a different style of movie i think this movie would have been better scored with uh, a little like <laughs> I wrote it down. I was like, a little lesson in subtlety, because I think we were a little too big most of the time. But if we're looking at it from the aspect of let our audience know what to think right now, that's accomplished extremely well. It's only when I noticed, like, wow, we're doing too much right now, that I didn't even like count it as a detractor. I was just like, okay, he's kind of showing off this, but let's chill. What do you say we give away some superlatives, you guys? Let's do it. Ready, sir. All right. MVP, Dustin. I don't think I have any other opportunity but to give it to Gene Tierney. And we've already spoken on it quite a bit. And so the, I didn't try <laughs> to find anyone else. She's believable as period-specific housewife. She's believable as obsessive monster. I mentioned that the makeup allows her tone to really shine, but uh, I, I don't think this goes to anyone else. Nice. 
Lizzie, how about you? Same. And for all of those reasons, she was magnificent. Well said. Yeah, it's going to be a clean sweep here. Martin Scorsese said that this is one of his favorite films of all time. It's an amazing film. He said, and Jean Tierney is one of the most underrated actresses of all time. And she was one of the tops of the golden era of film. Mm -hmm. So high praise from a great filmmaker. She's well-deserving of it. Too bad she didn't get the Oscar here. Yeah. Best Supporting Actor, Dustin. Kind of a surprising choice. I'm going Daryl Hickman, who plays our Danny. Danny. I think he's charming. I think he, strangely enough to say, a well-developed young boy. He doesn't look like he should have polio. That's, <laughs> that's an issue. But his portrayal of his charm and his politeness. Well, if you fire her, I'll hire her. You know, that, that, that kind of stuff is so, like, leave it to beaver, like, swell. Oh, he's leave it to beaver, yeah. And, and his portrayal allows the weight of his death to matter even more. Uh, to, and to hit you harder. Great. So I'm going with uh, Daryl. Nice. How about you, Lizzie? Best supporting. So I went with Jean Crane, who plays Ruth. I did that because I think Ruth does such a great job as a character. She is like the antithesis of Ellen. And, you know, she's in, in good ways and bad. You know, Ellen is very calculated. And I think in her mind, if you were to ask her to describe herself, she would probably somewhere in that description, I think perfect would be there as of how Ellen would describe herself. And I think that Ruth is messy and kind of, you know, she's messing around in the garden. So she's dirty and she's just silly and playful. And she's kind of all of these things that I think Ellen looks down upon, but because it all kind of goes down to the control aspect, she's very uncontrolled. But, you know, in the end, she really does end up coming out on top because she's able to kind of lean into that mess and that's able to save her rather than Ellen, her perfectionism destroyed her. So I think, I don't know, I just, I think Jean was, she was very charming and she made the messiness look charming and sweet. The scenes in Bar Harbor between her and Jean Tierney were just awesome. Yes. I mean, really great. She like that whole confrontation where she's like, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. And this has nothing to do with Richard. Like I, you are a pitiful person and I just want to get as far away from you as possible. Right. It was intense. My supporting actor, I got to go with Vincent Price. The whole courtroom scene that carries you through, you know, you lost your main actor. <laughs> How are you going to finish this movie out? Well, a dose of Vincent Price goes a long way. So he's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Dizzy, hidden gem. I'm going to go with Vincent Price as my hidden gem because I'm going to be totally honest. In the beginning when he comes in and he's, you know, we, we just recognize him now as the ex-fiance. And he's like, you know, I got your telegram. I came in and they're having that whole discussion in the parlor room. No, that did not register that that was Vincent Price. And I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it completely didn't. I've only recognized oh, him sense. as such an older man. And so mm -hmm. then later in the courtroom, I'm watching it when my AirPods are in. And I remember for a moment, I'm not looking at the screen. And so I'm just kind of relying on his voice to kind of just guide what's happening in that scene. And that's when it clicks is I'm more hyper-focused on his voice. And I'm like, wait, where do I know that voice from? And then my just was like, oh my gosh, this is Vincent. That's Vincent Price. And uh, so it just made that scene all the more exciting for me, knowing what just a icon he, he was. He really works with Gene Tierney a lot. They had done a movie before Laura, early in Gene's career. 
they they have both big roles in Laura from the movie before this, and then they go on again to have the top two roles in Dragonwick after this. So there's quite a bit of overlap between the two of them. Dustin, hidden gem. The guy who plays Thorn, his name is Chill Wills. <laughs> That's a good name. <laughs> That's okay. That rules. I had other name. hidden gems, but I, I we didn't mention it yet. So his name's Chill. Chill Will. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like it would be a good hip-hop artist name, by the way. It'd be um, a good jazz artist. Sure. That's right. You're turning into Chill Will. I'm going to go with my hidden gem is going to be Reed Hadley. He's the guy who plays Dr. Mason. And I got to say that, that that scene was a big turn in the movie. And his, re- his reaction was good, too, of like slight, uh, you called him a cripple? I, and then she's like, I didn't mean that. I'm like, I'm sure you didn't. Like, yeah. uh, he's so good. He's so good with that. And I liked his, well, no, he can go to the back of the moon. Why are you pushing so hard on this? So recast. If you had to recast somebody else and put somebody else in their place, who would it be, Lizzie? This actually wouldn't technically work with the timing because I think she actually is five years younger than Jean Tierney. But I had thought of replacing Mrs. Burnett and putting in Angela Lansbury. I thought it would be really interesting. You know, maybe back in her Manchurian Candidate days, which I know is you know sometime after, but. I think she doesn't look young in that either, by the way. No, no, but I think she would be so great to yeah, she you know, she has a very old looking face. And I I don't mean that as an insult. It's just like she just Whoa. always looks like more like but she has like a very like mature looking face. Like even she was never young. When you're looking at her pictures when she is very young, she just looks very mature. <laughs> it's like but it's like Benjamin Button where you're born old. But then you don't, but you don't age in reverse. I know it sounds so bad, but yeah, she just, she just doesn't have like a very youthful look. Even when she was young, she just always looked very mature. So, I mean, maybe that worked to her benefit when she was able, able to play older characters, but she, um, but in the Manchurian Candidate, she's just so snake-like and kind oh, of she's... just icky. And I think, I think it would have been really cool to put her in that role because there was a part of me that felt that way about Ellen's mom just for a quick moment. And then of course, when things play out and you realize that, you know, how things actually are, you realize that her, her mom really is just kind of just trying to keep everything, all the pieces together as best as she can. But I think it would have been interesting to have Angela Lansbury in there as like a red herring. Yeah. Uh, I love her in Manchurian Candidate. We have to cover that someday. <laughs> I'd love to do that one. Dustin. Recast. I'm dying over here. I'm dying. I love you, Angela Lansbury. Yeah, we love her very much. Her face is just old. Or hold on, let me change it up. That sounded bad. Her face is like it never had youth. That's what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's like my dad. Like we, um, he used to give me so much flack when I was a kid about my oldest sons. They'd be playing board games, and I'd be like, "No offense, Dad, but you suck at this." I just think because I can put I no, no offense, offense in front of it that it just magically can, can't be offensive. You're not dumb. You're just lacking smarts. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be nice here. Oh, I'm so sorry to Angela Lansbury. We love you. You're a treasure. Retro movie roundtable love yeah. old Angela Lansbury. <laughs> hey, my recast is uh, I, I think Gene Crane did a great job, and I wouldn't replace anyone in this movie, but I have to. Uh, so instead of Jean Cran, I'm going to put Vivian Leigh there. Uh, and okay. I'm going to do that because her eyebrow game is just on point. 
And I think just having, I think that Gene Crane maybe could have been a bit more expressive. It, that's literally, that's it. That's it. Um, but I think that Vivian Lee's eyebrows are the alluring kind. And I would like us to be led to look her way the way that Ellen believes Richard is always looking her way. That was just kind of a fun exercise. Uh, yeah. I, like that. I also feel the same way. This is a strong cast. And because I said like I was a little bit harsh on Cornell Wilde to start with uh, as Richard, I'm going to put Gregory Peck in here. He's about four years younger. So a handsome man. He's a really good actor for, for one. I don't think you ever need to explain why you would want Gregory Peck in a movie. I don't think Cornell Wilde does a bad job. I just, I have to play the game. <laughs> yeah. Best shot, Dustin. It is Ruth on the dock, all in white, waiting for Richard to paddle up. It's, it's a culmination. There's only two minutes after the end of the courtroom scene when we have the resolution of that story, and then we have Richard paddling up. And, and immediately after that, by the way, is a, a wonderful shot of their silhouette against the water. So it's nearly a tie between those two shots. But in reflection of this movie, I believe there's something special about thinking about how Ruth grew up with Ellen as her cousin and had to endure that and had to endure who that was and a certain type of pain that must come along with having her as your peer growing up. And so for this to end up not being just a, the monster didn't win, and it's not necessarily about Richard getting out. I think it's more about like Ruth has got, even though we weren't following Ruth through the movie, I think her ending up with a happy ending is something that's really pleasant. And oh, so um, we need was, a happy ending here after it that. Was, it was so, so touching to see those two scenes, uh, two shots back to back. I love it. Lizzie, best shot. It's a pretty movie. It was so gorgeous. So it was hard to pick, but I think the scene where she is spreading her father's ashes. She's on horseback, and I think just the natural backdrop of the movie can go without saying as my best shot, but why I chose it was there's this intensity to her while she's doing it where she's, it's almost like she has like a crying child in her arms where she's just like whooshing back and forth very quickly to spread the ashes, and it's the almost like militant way that she's doing it back and forth along with this very serious look on her face. You know, she's not somber. She's not grieving. It's like trying to really just gauge like this. She's almost emotionless. And I remember finding that very strange. And, you know, even for somebody that has a hard time keep, you know, I, I'm not one of these people, but for people who have a hard time getting in touch with their emotions, I think in a moment like that, there's something happening, but certainly not that straight kind of stoic appearance that she's giving. And so I think not knowing that the movie ends with us getting no motive and no why as to what has happened? What series of events has led to her doing this? That's actually a very frightening scene. That very shot good. is also uh, paired with a loud, banging score yes. that is meant to be impactful, and it is. Yes. My best shot. I'm going to take the low hanging fruit here and just say Ellen on the rowboat, looking at the bubbles coming up. Yep. There. I also saw that image. Before, watched the movie, yeah. and I thought nothing of it. I just thought. And then best scene, 
Lizzie. So I went with the low-hanging fruit for the scene. It's for the the whole boat scene with Danny. I It's not my particular favorite scene. It certainly isn't something that I would, you know, it's not, if you're watching this with a buddy, like, hold on, let's fast forward to this moment. Like, we've got to watch this. It's not like that, <laughs> but, I, but I think it's not my favorite scene in that way. But it is in the fact that it was so impactful. Like it really did its job in the fact that my skin felt like it was crawling the entire time. And I just felt, I felt sick to my stomach. And even though you know what's going to happen and your body is trying its best to prepare you, you still feel really gutted at the end of it. And it's just a very, very intense scene. I think they just, they did it very well. And that to me is the most memorable scene of the movie. We'll put, do you have a favorite though? My favorite, if I had to pick like what what I would fast forward to would honestly just be, I loved the opening scene. I loved the banter between the two of them. I yeah, One thing I really, really love is in these older movies, the way that they turn a phrase is just so sweet. You know, I, I think the way that men and women flirt in these movies is so clever and it's fun and innocent. You know, you're not... They fall in love fast. <laughs> yeah, so well, even in the same way, like how like with... It's not quite as intense as Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare, it's like poetry. And, but so I'm, I'm not necessarily equating it to that, but... I think if you look at the way that they're flirting with each other, it's suggestive, but it's not inappropriate. And so it's like giving you just enough to be able to read in between the lines, but not enough that it crosses a boundary to make someone feel uncomfortable or make somebody feel like they're overstepping. And so I just, I think the way that they flirt is just so sweet and charming. And one of my, my best quote is from, from that scene. All right. Dustin, how about you? What's your best scene? Yeah, uh, flirting in the 40s is kind of like uh, gentlemen and ladies like playing tennis or even <laughs> yes, a badminton. It's kind, of, it's kind of like gentlemen and ladies playing badminton, like back and forth. Like we, this is expected and it's safe. Uh, that's how I feel. So yes. uh, my, my best scene is the courtroom scene. It's wonderful. You have to suspend your knowledge about the order and process of the typical proceedings, but all you have to do is let Vincent Price cook. And he does, and uh, it there it's it was really needed, I think, to have most of this movie was in uh, the power of whispers and subtle statements, and his is so driving that it was so so great to to end with it. And once again, we don't exactly know the nature of their relationship, but she set up this plan. She wrote him a letter. He took it and ran. He, I don't consider him a villain. We don't. I don't think no, we do. No. He's no. just doing his job. But, yeah. But he's... But, he genuinely but, liked her. Well, right. But, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is still something that was like, ooh, that, that's another thing I'll take away is uh, I think I used to think of Vincent Price, uh, even though we know he's the voice in the Thriller album, uh, <laughs> I used to think of him as the, the inventor in Edward Scissorhands. I think I'll think of him now as Russell. Uh, this is this is a cool moment. Well said. Lizzie nailed my best scene, and she said all the same things. It's not my favorite scene. It's the best scene. My favorite scene is the one that you mentioned for your best shot, Dustin, at the end when 
we come up and Ruth is on the docks and I need that happy ending. I've yeah. been through a lot. Richard's been through a lot. He, <laughs> yeah. he, him paddling up in that little canoe, to simple little cabin to, you know, she's not as glamorous, but she's very beautiful in her own right. And she's a very sweet girl. I think they're going to have a happy ending and a happy life. And I need that after this. So yes. um, they close it out well. When, and, and if you think about Richard's personality in the opening three minutes and the final two minutes, you can tell that a little bit of that joy and that, uh, that part about him that we came to get really comfortable with is, is gone. Mm-hmm. Not, not completely gone, but it's not quite there. But it's, the ending is still happy. Yes. Yes. And we need that. Best wardrobe or makeup moment? Lizzie. I put Ellen's sunglasses. I want them. I really, really want them. I don't know if it's, that's bad juju, but I really, just really- Just don't wear them in a rowboat. That's all. I just love them so much. Uh, they're just so timeless. But I think aside from that, it would just have to be her hat game. She just had so many amazing different hats that she wore. And I f- want to say that she wore hats only in the first half of the movie and in the second half. It stopped. It, I remember more her hair. She's, in, kind of, she's inside more like she's pregnant. Yes. Like there's more of a focus on her tending to her hair more so than there is in the first half of the movie. It probably is. I would imagine it might have something to do with the fact that to Dustin's point that he made earlier that they're trying to communicate a message of how refined she is. And I think that there's something just to be said about what a hat will do to kind of complete your outfit, especially back then. But not swim caps. That was, that was not swim, swim caps. caps. Are, swim caps are dating and tragic things. Yes. So maybe after Danny and maybe like after that, when it's like yes. we've reached the point of no return, there's no more hats because it's like, she's becoming more like unkempt and, it's a gorgeous setting of the New Mexico uh, pergola, like with that water on the rock. She swims up in a gorgeous green swimsuit. And yet that rubber swim cap on top of her head is <laughs> like, it's like, what is that thing? Get that Nobody thing. looks good in the swim cap. Nobody looks good in the swim cap. <laughs> Not even Jean Tierney. So, yeah. um, Dustin, how about you? What's your best word over makeup moment? Both Ruth and Ellen wear flannel in this movie and both of them look like they've worn it before or that they're comfortable in it. Ellen is wearing it when she's uh, setting out the china in the cabin and Ruth is wearing it when she's doing gardening. And a lot of times when you put plaid or flannel on a leading actor, uh, you put on a leading lady, uh, it can look like, are you doing cowgirl cosplay? What is this? But uh, (laughs) what I found was like this, it looked like it was, it looked like what your family member or what your aunt would wear, you know, when they're gardening. And so like it worked. And among all the glamorous things, I just wanted to put a little attention on that little detail seemed right. Nice. My favorite wardrobe piece here is, you know, there's a lot of white that we talked about, but there's a moment where Jean Tierney wears a baby blue dress when she's talking to Danny. There's like buttons down the front of it. It's kind of a sleeveless thing. She later wears it in the same living room, like when her mom and Jean Sorry, when Ruth and her mother come over to visit. She's also wearing baby blue when she throws herself down the stairs. Maybe baby blue is a color. It's like she's like in a powder blue nighty. Things went wrong in both of those scenes for sure. So maybe maybe baby blue is a a turning point. I don't know. Her eyes are green, actually, so it's not necessarily an eye thing necessarily. But um, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, 
it goes good with her skin though so i liked it yeah let's go with change one thing dustin this is strange for me i think this might be the first time in my history of the show where i would not choose to change anything the, fir- the first time i can almost always come up with something yeah. but i think this movie as it's put together for what we got out of it is what it's supposed to be so i'll go back to something i mentioned just briefly earlier which is i think the composer needs to tone it down a bit that was truly it i, I, figured I thought you were going there the musical yeah. hits were too big than they needed to be but not enough for me to dislike it that's really saying something okay yeah how about you lizzie change one thing so some of my favorite scenes were the scenes with Ruth and the mom, just because I I was really wanting to see some more Easter eggs as to Ellen's past. And I think that we've all kind of unanimously agreed that the fact that she doesn't have a motive is a good thing. It kind of lends itself to the eeriness of her character. But I would have loved to at least seen some more interactions like how does she treat the delivery man? Yes, like I would say, yeah, anything like that. Like any of the people that are outside of the bubble that she's in with Richard, I would have liked to have seen that just because to me that was fascinating to watch. So I'm with Dustin where I... She kind of just talked to Thorn for a scene. Very briefly, but it felt very, even that felt very calculated because she's just trying to dig up information on... Totally. Him yeah. and it's like I forget the woman's name, but he, she's like, "Who is so and so?" Because Danny had told her a story about some girl that he was hung up on. So I, I honestly didn't really feel like, you know, just someone that like Ruth, where her guards totally down. I think that like you might like to see her on the train before he she bumps into court. Yes, yes, before she fell asleep. But I'm with Dustin, where I had I was reaching to come up with that because, yeah. in all honesty, like I really enjoyed this movie, so I could not think of something that I would have readily changed. You guys actually helped me find it midway through the show. I would like to go out and closing on a closing screen and say, "Leave her to heaven and those thorns that in <laughs> her bosom cool. lodge to prick and sting her." By Shakespeare and Hamlet. That'd be nice. Yeah, that would be best quote, Lizzie. Richard and Helen are chatting and she has said that she's feeling like she's figured him out. And so she's going through the list of personality traits that he has. And afterwards he goes, shades of Sherlock. If you lived in Salem a hundred years ago, they'd have they'd have burned you. Funny. It was a funny little, little aside. Kind of goes back to like that turn of phrase of, you know, being clever in the way that you communicate. And yeah. It's silly. Dustin, best quote. Mine is from my best scene, and it's a little long. It is after Vincent Price. It's after Russell is asking Richard if he believes that she could be that kind of monster. And he gives quite the stirring speech, which is that she was a woman who sought to possess everything she loved, who loved only what it could bring her, whose love estranged her own father and mother whose love possessed her father until he couldn't call his soul his own, who by her own confession to me killed my brother, killed her own unborn child, and who is now reaching from the grave to destroy her innocent sister. Yes, she was that sort of monster. And what that quote is, is if you had to explain what this movie is to someone who wasn't going to watch it, that's that's what this movie's about. Yeah, that's very Shakespearean in its own right. Now that you yes, very. Broke it down on its own. 
my best quote was, uh, I mentioned it earlier, was when Mrs. Burnett said, there's nothing wrong with Ellen. She just loves too much. I, that, that was haunting on the second pass through. And then I didn't notice it earlier on in my first pass, but the second time around, she does look to Harland and she goes, I'll never let you go. Never, never, never. (laughs) That one becomes a lot more creepy. I also thought it was pretty funny when she's just like, I want to do everything for you. I want to serve, clean, cook for you. And I thought it was pretty funny for this time. Like this seemed untimely. He goes, you're an idiot. (laughs) 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 You get to keep the job. Yeah. It's like this little ongoing joke between them of like whether or not she's going to be continuing as the job is his wife it's very very silly yeah yeah all right well we've come full circle five star scale half star intervals justin what would you give this movie i really enjoyed this movie after my second rewatch there were things that stood out that i didn't have to hunt for but to truly enjoy i had to dig in a bit and uh, i am rating this as someone who is not seeking out 80-year-old movies. That for a mass appeal, I think this is still a very good score at four stars. The things to you got to hunt down, it's almost as if like you know there are some people that you could not show a Marx Brothers movie to because they don't have the finely tuned attention span to keep up. And then there are other, there are other types of people that you, you know don't like certain types of movies. And I think this movie Brian is... Fry great for the cerebral watcher but i think there are some people that would really lose the gifts that this movie gives you um so i'm i i actually came into the podcast thinking 3.5 but after our discussion i went to four uh, and it's not it's it's a strange version of rewatchability is that once you kind of know it becomes almost more intriguing but i don't know what beyond that but I, th- I think four is my perfect score for it. Nice. Lizzie, how about you? What are you going to give this movie? I think I'm going 4.5. I think what's keeping me from giving it a perfect score is that is the rewatchability. I think I'm right with you, Dustin, that on the second viewing of this, I enjoyed it a lot more. It just lends itself. Once you're kind of in on it, then it becomes all the more fun to watch. But I don't necessarily think that this is a movie that I will personally reach for to watch again. And so that is really keeping me from giving it a perfect score. But that being said, I think in terms of what this movie is, it's really spectacular. Like they do such a one in in visuals and story and kind of that eeriness, but somehow still managing to have moments that feel good. And it, it's really, really wild to to see the roller coaster that you go on and then you end on that really great high note. And they did a wonderful job. And I really do. I think it holds up. All right. And I'm going to match you. I'm going to go 4.5. And I was texting Chad. I said, I think I'm going to give this a 3.5. And I don't know that I should have picked this into the second viewing that you guys all echoed. I mean, yeah, the, the hard hits hit me real hard the first time. I didn't feel good losing Tanny and, and the child and no. framing and having him go to jail for two years. And I was just sitting there going like, oh, I've been through a lot. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> I had to believe that must have been part of the original book, the prison sentence, because the thing about him being an accessory to the crime and getting two years seemed flimsy but i it was so it was so easy to ignore 
I was going to say, like, that's a tragedy. He didn't have for certain that she did not divulge to him until they were in Bar Harbor that she did it. He had a pretty good idea. But I mean, I don't know. Would you really go to your jail for two years for that? I don't know. It's very complicated. That's what I'm saying. That, that, it's that's pretty your, flimsy. Yeah. 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 Accessory would, feels intense. He's been through a lot anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't, yeah. You don't need to hammer it home. We just watched what he went through. Yeah. All right. Do you guys want to help me pick a movie for next time? I've got some great options. Interesting. With with this particular movie we covered tonight, pretty much aside from the courtroom scene, a complete lack of law enforcement here. And we're going to change that for next week. Uh, Russell, I'm going to read you three options here. Option number one, Lethal Weapon from 1987. Two newly paired cops who are complete opposites must put aside their differences in order to catch a gang of drug smugglers. Option number two, Bad Boys 2 from 2003. Two loose cannon narcotics cops investigate the flow of ecstasy into Florida from a Cuban drug cartel. And option three, Point Break from 1991. An FBI agent goes undercover to catch a gang of surfers who may be bank robbers. What's it going to be? These are all very exciting, very good movies. You need to do them all someday. <laughs> I was gonna say, these are all these are all fantastic. Well, I'm just gonna. I locked in on the first one you said with Lethal Weapon from '87. Let's mm. let's do that one. So, all right. Well, thank you, Lizzie, and thank you, Dustin, for venturing back in time with me and going in sight unseen for all three of us. And it's fun to do this because we have not done this formation of a the trio of us. So this first first time the three of us. Nice. I couldn't believe it. Great dealer's choice. And thank you all the Lord's Ladies and Nights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe on our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? You teach your class about slashers and you're walking down a dark alley alone. <laughs>